0: Well, good morning and welcome. It's great to have you here. It's great to see you. We're in the midst of studying Colossians, a life worth living. And for the past couple of weeks, George has shared with us about being in Christ, that wherever we are, we're in Christ, that Christ is at the center of our lives. Today, we want to take a look at the second half of chapter 1. We're going to look at verses 13 through 23. And we're going to look at why it is not only important for Christ to be at the center of our lives in Christ, but also to put Jesus in first place. At the top, out in the front. So if you would, we're going to be reading the Scripture It's Colossians 1, verses 13 through 23. And it will also be up here on the screen as well. For He has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son He loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation, to present you holy in his sight, without blemish and free from accusation, if you continue in your faith established and firm, and do not move from the hope held out in the gospel. This is the gospel that you heard, and that has been proclaimed to every creature under heaven, and of which I, Paul, have become a servant. Will you pray with me? Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you. We thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the fact that we can get together here and corporately come together and worship you and praise you and do so without any fear of any retribution or any any type of persecution in this country. Thank you for that. Thank you for these words, these infallible words. The words from this book that, that this is a standard. our life and our faith, these ancient words that were alive then and are so alive moment by moment every day, and we just pray, we pray that, that and I pray that the words that you give me will be your words, and that this message will just fall on each of us in such a way as that all of our lives are impacted in the way that you want them to be impacted. And I pray this in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Do petty irritations get to you? Do you sometimes feel that it's you against the world? Do you often find that you're putting the urgent over the important? Or are all the activities that are in your life, that are stuffed into your life, Crowd out the time that you have to seek Jesus, to spend time with him. Well, see, much of my life, that's exactly how I would describe myself for many years. There was a rare time when he would, Jesus, would fall in the top ten, much less anything lower than that. But how do we make Jesus first? He wants to be preeminent in our lives. He wants to be prominent. Preeminent is first. Prominent is out front. That's what He wants for each of us. So how do we do that? Today, I want to look at three ways that we can give Jesus His rightful place. And that is first place. The first way we do this is we begin by thanking Him for our salvation. We we begin by thanking Him for our salvation. Let's take a look again at verses 13 and 14. We see that in these verses, these two verses... There are four thanksgivings that can transform our lives. Where he says, For he has rescued us from the dominion of darkness and brought us into the kingdom of the Son he loves, in whom we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. So the first thanksgiving is he's delivered us. He's delivered us. He took us from the dominion of darkness, and he has brought us into The kingdom of his son. In John 14, 20, Jesus said, On that day you will realize that I am in my father, you are in me, and I am in you. So he delivered us, and he delivered us into his kingdom. He translated us. He translated us from one place to another. He moved us from one country to another. Not physically, but spiritually. He has taken us from a place of defeat. And he has brought us into his kingdom. He has made us citizens of heaven. Now, you may be sitting there thinking, wait a second. I mean, I know when I die, I'll be a citizen of heaven. But right now, I'm a citizen here on earth, here in these United States. But you see, that's not what his word says. It teaches us that our address has already been changed. We've already been made a citizen of heaven. Our names are in his book, so we have been translated. That's the second Thanksgiving. The third Thanksgiving is he has redeemed us. Now, redeeming us means he has set us free from sin. He has set us free from all of our fears. The power of sin, it holds no more power over us. So He has redeemed us. Jesus said that He came so that we may have life and have it to the full. So He has redeemed us. Another thanksgiving. And the fourth thanksgiving is He has forgiven us. He has forgiven our sins, past, present, and future. All of our sins have been forgiven. That's what He did for us on the cross. Now, There may be someone out here thinking, you know, you don't know what sin or sins I have committed. And you're right, I don't. But Jesus does. And the work that he did on that cross is he took those sins. He took all of those sins. So don't diminish what he did on that cross by thinking that there's a sin that you cannot be forgiven for. Okay? That's done. So these are some incredible things that he has done for us. Some very, very incredible things that he has done for us. And, you know, what this means basically for us is that we need to think about it in terms of what what can we do. And what we can do is we can thank him for our Thanksgiving. We can make a regular habit of thanking him for our Thanksgiving, for these Thanksgivings just to make it each and every day a regular habit. You know, Psalm 53, two says that God looks down from heaven on the sons of man to see if there are any who understand, any who seek God. So this is one way that we can put him in first place. We can put Jesus Christ in first place. A second way that will help us to put him in first place is to believe the truth about Him. Now, I want to spend just a little bit longer on this because I think this is where sometimes we can stumble. You see, anytime time we start to believe a lie about Jesus, even a small lie, then we begin to steal away from Him being in first place. You know... In Colossians, and we're going to study more of this as, and see more of this as we get into chapter 2, but there were some false teachings going on in Coloss, or Colossae. Um, and one of the, some of it was just a mixture of Gnosticism and Judaism and just some other things that were thrown in. But, and I think it's important for us to look at this and understand this because sometimes we also can be faced with things that are not truth. But yet we believe that maybe we believe they are. One of the things that they were facing, one of the things they believed is the the God that you and I talk about, we worship and we praise, they felt because material things, things that we can touch and we can feel and we can see that all material things were evil. And therefore, God, who was perfectly good, could not create this matter, this material things, that were evil. And therefore, for him to be able to do something about this, he had to create a smaller God. In fact, they did not believe that Jesus had been born as a man because we are material, therefore we're evil, and therefore Jesus could not have been born as a man. But that's one of the things us one of the beliefs that were going around in Colossae. And, you know, there were some variations. But, you know, we ourselves can sometimes have some strange, thing, strange ways of thinking about God as well. And any, anything that is less than the absolute truth will diminish him. So the truth about Jesus is very, very, very important. You know, some people may say, well, just say you love him, that's all. And others may say, well, just so he loves you. And others might say, well, you know, I don't deny that he is a way, but they will not agree that he is the only way. But the truth is very, very, very important. In John 16, when Jesus was talking about the Holy Spirit, that when he comes, he did say that he says, well, when he comes... He will prove the world to be wrong about sin and righteousness and judgment. So it's very important for us to know these truths, to understand these truths, to love these truths and to live these truths. So I want to go through six truths with you right now. The first one is truth number one. He is God. If you take a look, At verse 16, I'm sorry, verse 15. The Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. Image here does not mean that he looks exactly like God. That's not what he means. That's not what Paul means by image. God is spirit. We know that. Image here is saying that all of the characteristics of God are in the person of Jesus Christ. All the characteristics of God are in the person of Jesus Christ. Jesus was also a man. He had a human body. But he was the only man, the only man that was 100% God, 100% man, 100% of the time. Now, this truth is so, so important because all the other truths of Christianity come from this truth. So anyone that teaches anything different than that is false teaching. And it's okay to point that out. Some people might say, oh, you're being judgmental or you're being exclusive. But no, it's the truth. You know, if someone was driving down the wrong way on a road, you would point that out to them. You'd want to help them. That's the truth. That's not being judgmental. Truth number two in here. He is the firstborn. He is firstborn. And it says here, he is the firstborn over all creation. And you might be sitting there thinking, okay, now I've seen this word, but wait a second. I've read about the Trinity. Okay, I know Jesus is God, so therefore God didn't create him. He wasn't created by God. He was God. But Jesus was born as a man. So what does it mean when we're talking about firstborn? What this means in this context, it is referencing position. It's not referencing order of birth. So Paul is not talking about order of birth here. He is talking about position. It's unfamiliar to us, this word firstborn, but it was very familiar to the Colossians. And this is the reason why he's using this. So he's saying that, yeah, Adam was the first man, but Jesus Christ, he was the firstborn. He was the one that was given all the rights, all the privileges. He was given all of the inheritance of the universe. It's his. So that's truth number two. Truth three, he is creator. Let's take a look again at what Paul says in verse 16. For by him all things were created, things in heaven and things on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities, all things were created by him. In John 1, 3, we see also, it says, Through him all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So everything, everything has been created by him. When it says all, that means everything. You know, in Genesis, we read about creation. And then later, Jesus came into the world later in history. Which is amazing to me when you think about that he who created the universe, this earth, came and walked on this earth. The hand that figuratively created everything, in reality, touched this earth. Have you thought about the fact, though, that in the carpenter shop, the hands in the carpenter shop, where Jesus was before his ministry started, When he was making a table or making a chair, those hands are the same hands that made the wood. Have you thought about that? When he was there sitting among the 5,000, and he divided those loaves of bread and the fish, those hands that did that were the same hands that created the wheat, that made the wheat, that made the fish that swam in the sea. And when he stretched out those hands so that those nails could be driven into them, those hands are the same hands that made the iron that formed the nails, made the wood that made the cross and the hammer, and made the people that drove the nails. So he is creator. He is our creator. That really should want you to want to make and put him in first place. Truth number four, he is owner and sustainer. And the end of verse 16 and 17 says, all things were created by him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. The truth of this world is it was created for him. We also see... In Romans eleven thirty six, it says, For from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be the glory forever. Amen. You see, this world is not only made by him, but everything. Everything goes through him. And it's for him, for his glory, for his pleasure, for his joy. And you know what? Everything that happens does not surprise him. After all, it all passes through him. So I hope for each of you, for all of us, that it helps us to evaluate how we live our lives and that we don't live our lives as selfish owners of the things that he has blessed us with, but rather we live our lives as loving stewards of his creation. There was a Dutch theologian that said this about the fact that Jesus is the owner. He said, when Jesus looks at his universe from his exalted throne at the right hand of the Father, and he sees the great galaxies whirling in space, the planets, and the people upon the planet, all the minute details of life here, including the details of individual lives, There's nothing anywhere in which he cannot say, mine. It's all his. And then it goes on to say here that everything holds together in him. You know, he didn't just wind the universe up and let it start to tick down. Okay? He is the sustainer. He is intimately involved in every tick of the universe. All of the laws of gravity, all of the laws of physics, all of the laws of energy and biology, all of these that hold things together, they are all daily expressions of his creative mind. You know, when physicists, and particularly particle physicists, these are folks who study atoms, when they get together and they try to figure out things that you and I generally don't even think about, Okay? Figure out things like atoms, and then things that are smaller than atoms called electrons, and those that are smaller than electrons called quarks, and now they found something even smaller than quarks. They don't have a name for it yet, so they call it gluon. They say it holds things together. One particle physicist from Cornell said this about what holds the universe together. He said, particle physicists such as myself want to know what are the fundamental invisible building blocks from which all the matter of the universe is made? What are the basic interactions that glue these building blocks together to make the matter that we see around us? Most of us think the current picture we have is incomplete, and there's something deeper. He's right. There is something more fundamental working behind what we know. The excitement of our work is that we are constantly probing For the chink in the arm of our current understanding that will reveal some clue of the most profound and fundamental structure that is underneath. Well, all they really need to do is read Colossians 1, really, because the structure underneath is Jesus Christ. He is what holds the universe together. He is what holds our individual lives together as well. Okay, truth number five. He is the head of the body, the church, and the beginning of the church. This is the truth about who Jesus is. He's just not watching the church from afar. No, he is the head of the church. He's the originator. He's the builder. He's the one that told Peter, I will build my church. He is the operator. He is the one that we are to follow together. One head, one body, many parts. He's given us, his church, many different gifts, spiritual gifts, for the purpose of advancing his kingdom. But we follow him. You've heard the term, running around like a chicken with your head cut off. Right? We have to be careful of that in our churches. We have to be careful that We don't have a lot of activities and no direction or a lot of energy and no purpose. You know, if you were to Google attendance in church, you're going to see in the West that church attendance is on a decline. And there's many reasons, there's many opinions and so forth. But, you know, could it be as simple as the fact that we're not putting Jesus first? He's not in first place, either corporately or individually. Something we need to ask ourselves. But we always, we always must look to him. He is the head of the church. Jesus tells us in John 15 about the vine and the branches. And he explains in there that we are to remain in him. His words are to remain in us. We are to look to him. Because he says and he tells us that if we don't look to him, then apart from him we can do nothing. So it's so, so important that we remember that. Truth number six, he is the firstborn from the dead, our hope. Now this phrase again might be a little confusing because you might be going, wait a minute, but he's the firstborn, the first resurrected. You might be thinking, well, you know, Lazarus, you know, he was brought out of the tomb after dying. There's others. You know, Jesus is further down the list. But technically speaking, no, they were raised, they were resuscitated because they died again. Jesus, on the other hand, he was resurrected. He was given an eternal body, one that does not die. That is our hope. That is our hope for each and every one of us. So let's take just a minute and review these six truths as to what they mean for us. He is God. That means I can depend on him. He is firstborn. That means I can look to him as my leader. He is the creator. He created me. He knows me. He knows everything about me. He intimately knows me. And I can rest assured in all of that. He is the owner and the sustainer. This means that I give everything back to him. He owns it all anyway. It's all His. And then I can depend on Him. and give it back to Him, and I can depend on Him. He is the head of the body and the beginning of the church. That means we should follow Him. We should look to Him always for direction. And we can praise Him. And He is the firstborn from among the dead. He is our hope. And there's more. But these lists of these Six truths, they should have a profound effect upon each of us and how we live our lives. And when we talk about these truths, we can talk about three levels. First, we learn it. Then, we love it. Then, we live it. It's not enough to just learn it. We need to have it drop those 18 inches from our head to our heart so that we love it. We have to do that in order to live it. And we know that we have recognized the truth about Jesus when it changes our lives. You say that again. We know that we have really recognized the truth about Jesus when it changes our lives. In verses 19 and 20, Paul ends this by saying very simply, for God was pleased to have all of his fullness dwell in him and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, making peace through his blood shed on the cross. So for us to live in commitment to the truth about Jesus, we must all recognize and refuse the temptation to lessen him. For us to live in commitment to the truth about Jesus, we, we must all recognize and refuse the temptation to lessen him. You know, some people treat Jesus like the English treat their kings and queens. They love to rejoice in Him, They love to celebrate in it. They love to write about Him, But they're the first to admit that they have no authority and no power in their lives or over their lives. And, you know, sometimes we can do the same thing. We can say, yeah, I want Jesus to be Lord of my life. I want to follow him. But then when it comes to everyday decisions in life, our daily lives, our daily decisions, we can go, well, you know, I'm just going to reserve that. I'm going to make those decisions on my own. I'm not going to bring it to him. You know, I'm kind of closer to the situation. That's lessening him. We have to refuse the temptation to lessen him. And that's what Paul is saying in these two verses here. He's he's saying all the fullness dwells in him. Fullness means sum total. So if you add up everything about Jesus Christ's life, the bottom line is he is God. Okay? You know, in John 12, 45, Jesus said, the one who looks at me... Is seeing the one who sent me, and again, just a little later on, he said in fourteen nine, anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. And also, Paul is talking about the, of reconciliation. He says, in relationship to creation, all things reconciled. So all things have been reconciled through Christ. Some people will say, well, you know, some things are reconciled in him. But no, Paul says the truth is all things, all things are reconciled in Christ. And we see in 2 Corinthians 5, 19, it says that God was reconciling the world to himself through Christ, not counting people's sins against them. The third way, trust Him for your future. Trust Him for your future. This is the third way. Trust Him to grow you and make you the person that He wants you to be. You know, Paul gives us a list of three conditions prior to the cross in here. He talks about us being alienated from God, enemies in your mind, and evil. So we were alienated... We were enemies, and we were evil. And some may be thinking, well, I don't think I was that bad. I mean, you know, maybe I didn't go to church. Maybe I didn't read my Bible. But really, I overall was a pretty good person. Well, what Paul is giving us here is when we say that, we're comparing ourselves against other people, to other people. That's not what he's saying here. These are not words of comparison. Paul is telling us the truth about the condition of mankind without Christ. And then Paul turns to the future. Look at these two different scriptures. 2 Corinthians 5, 15. He says that those who live might no longer live for themselves, but for him, for Jesus, who for their sake died, And was raised. And then he says in Ephesians 1, 4, we see, For he chose us, look at this, in him before the creation of the world. Why? To be holy and blameless in his sight. So our condition after the cross is holy. That's quite a big jump from alienated to holy. You know, the aim of God's reconciliation in our lives is holiness, which means set apart, which means it changes who we are. Without blemish is the second condition. And then free from accusation. So as you look at that verse in verse 22, it says, But now he has reconciled you by Christ's physical body through death to present you holy in his sight, without blemish, and free from accusation. So now for the end of that particular verse, it says, If you continue in your faith established and firm not moved from the hope held out in the gospel you know sometimes there's an important question here and sometimes you almost want to skip it when you're going through um, but it's a very important question and this is and it is what does this if mean what does that mean if does that mean that if i don't do what god wants me to do that i lose my salvation and i don't get into heaven the answer is absolutely no That is not what that means. This if that we see here is about eternal reward. It's not about eternal salvation. If you go through God's word, there are many verses in the Bible that talk about eternal reward in terms of if. There's not any that talk about our eternal salvation in terms of if once you believe in your heart that Jesus Christ is your Lord and your Savior. So you, once, you, once you make that profession of faith, once you believe that in your heart, then your eternal reward, it's secure. It is secure. But now, when the Bible talks about our eternal reward, it does use phrases that make me realize that there are going to be different rewards for different people. Even in, when you take a look at 1 Corinthians 3, it says in there, just in there, it says, some people are going to have their works burned up. Oh, they'll make it into heaven, but so as through fire or through flames. So all that they built in their lives were not the things that God wanted them to build. Not that they're not getting into heaven. They just didn't build the things that he wanted them to build. You know, Romans 12.1, Paul says that in view of God's mercy, that we should offer our bodies as a living sacrifice. So don't let the word if here scare you at all. It's not there to do anything but encourage you. Because what he's saying, he's giving us a picture of God's future. And he's saying God wants us holy. He wants to present. He wants us presented to him as being holy. He wants to be able to say that here is my holy child who has grown in me. He or she has come to know me better and better. He or she has followed my way. That's what God wants for each of us so that he can say, Well done, good and faithful servant. So do you want Christ to be in first place? Then start today by thanking him for your salvation. Make it a habit each and every day to thank him for your salvation. For truth, I challenge you to take this list and do a personal study. How can you learn? What can you learn? And then how can you love these truths? How can you live these truths? Trust. Look and see what God wants for our future, the end of our lives. We trust him for that because he is our hope. So the big idea for today is this. Be careful that you just do not celebrate all that Christ saved us from and give little thought and make little effort regarding all that Christ saved us to do which we cannot do unless we put Jesus in first place. Now, I put up here also a slide on the four souls, the soil that is talked about in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And I thought this would be appropriate to put it up here today so we can all look at it and say, well, where are we? If you could put that image up there of the parable of the sower, that slide. And this is, it, it doesn't matter where you are today other than do you want to change your life if you, and where are you at with your relationship? Where are you at with putting Jesus in first place? Because it talks about the hard path, the, the path that is so hard that when the, the word is sown, the birds eat it. It takes, does not take root at all. People absolutely do not believe it. To the rocky, place, rocky places where it grows, But as soon as hardship comes up, as soon as persecution, as soon as something comes up, then faith is no longer there. We don't, we just, it's just quick in and out. Or thorns, where things are choked. We let the, all the, everything in this world take our time away from spending any time seeking God's kingdom and his righteousness. Or is it the good soil? The soil that will produce the soil that would do the things that we are called to do. That he wants us to do so that he can, in fact, present us. We can be presented to him wholly. So today, just as we get ready to come to his table, think about these six truths. Give some thought to these four thanksgivings. See where you're at in your life. We are going to have as well um, some prayer ministers up here. And if there's anything that is on your heart, anything that you want to talk about, anything that you want to bring to him, then please do so. Come up and talk with them. They would love to talk with you. And what we talked about here today, it's all summed up in what Jesus did for us. You know, the night before he died, as they sat down, he took the bread, and he broke the bread, and he said, this is my body, broken for you. He knew what lay ahead, and he knew that he would have to, his body would have to be broken. He knew that before he ever came. And then after supper, and in the same way, he took the wine, and he poured it into the cup, and he said, this is a covenant, the new covenant in my blood, and it is poured out for you for the forgiveness of your sins. He would pour out all of his blood, and he would do so gladly for the forgiveness of our sins. And he asked us, he says, when you take this bread and this cup, he said, remember. Remember me. Remember my death until I come. He is coming back. So take just a couple minutes today and think about all that he's done. Think about those wonderful thanksgivings that we have to be so thankful for. Think about the truth, that he is Jesus Christ. Those six truths. And then come to his table.